I am not a good birthdayer or graduator or celebrator of important dates. I do it for others because they expect it and because it's the right thing to do, right? Like, you know, it's somebody's birthday, it's somebody's anniversary, it's the right thing to do. But I skipped my own high school graduation. I had more important things to do. Um, if you don't say happy birthday to me on my birthday, I'm good. I really am. And I thought about that this week. Why am I so bad at it? And I thought maybe it has to do with the whole love languages thing. Um, it, it, I'm sure it has to do with like suppressed issues from way back. I, I actually don't know why I just don't really, you know, care that much about things like birthdays. And if you have your own theories about me, tell Corky. He loves that sort of thing. And you can inform him and he'll give me an executive summary, which I may or may not read. The Bible, however, recognizes the need for remembering, because in remembering and celebrating and giving thanks, you're acknowledging something bigger than you. Psalm 124, which we just read corporately, is just such a psalm. It's public praise, everybody together, praising God, remembering God's deliverance. One commentator called it a psalm of humble thanksgiving which recognizes the limitations of human power and grounds our faith and our hope in the Lord alone. So looking at Psalm 124, it begins with this declaration, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. And that's a, that's a phrase in the Hebrew, which is the same as what we get in the New Testament that's Emmanuel, God with us. It's, the, it's an Old Testament Hebrew version of God with us in the past tense. So you say the Lord was on our side, the Lord was with us. The Lord is with us, the Lord is on our side. He says that, the Lord is on our side, but the way that he does it is not just his own private little thing. The, the psalmist says it at first, if the Lord had not been on our side, then he says, let Israel now say, and so this is done as like a call and response, almost like a cantor in, a, in an older liturgical service that would say something and then everyone responds with the same thing uh, said back. And so he says, if the Lord had not been on our side, okay, now all of you, if the Lord had not been on our side, and they all say it back, and then they together recount what happened because the Lord was on their side. So together, they're corporately giving thanks, they're corporately celebrating and what they say is what happened was if the Lord had not been on our side, when people rose up against us, they would have swallowed us alive. In verse 4, the flood would have swept over us, the torrent, the raging waters, we would be dead. The psalmist then stops in verse 6 and says, blessed be the Lord, praise God. Why? Because he has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped the snare of the fowler. Now, the psalmist is using a lot of metaphors. I mean, he's just kind of like piling them on top in a way that's usually not very helpful. He's talking about being eaten, being trapped, being flooded. But what deliverance is he actually remembering? 
Is it the Red Sea? If you know the story of Moses leading the Israelites out in the Red Sea, they, they're there at the edge of the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army rises up to attack them. The Lord parts the sea. They get through on dry ground, and then the floodwaters crush their enemies. The Lord delivers them. Is it any number of battles that Israel fought as they conquered the land of Canaan, and the Lord was clearly fighting for them? A number of the commentators point to a lesser-known story in 2 Kings where Hezekiah is king of the people of Judah at the time, and the king of Assyria, which was the big, mighty army, Sennacherib, was coming to attack, but the Lord delivered them miraculously. We actually don't know what this is referring to. It's not like our Independence Day where we know what it's pointing to. We're not sure what this is pointing to. But because of all of the metaphors, I think what we're meant to see is that it's pointing us to something deeper and greater and spiritual and eternal as well. There's an earnest praise of God because Yahweh is on their side. He rescued us. We bless and worship him. He and he alone is our helper. Eugene Peterson, the commentator and pastor, talked about this when he said the psalm does look into the troubles of history, but also of personal conflict and emotional trauma, and sees there the God who is on our side, who is our help, and gives thanks to that God. And at bare minimum, this psalm gives us the importance of giving thanks to God collectively, that all of us should be giving thanks collectively that it's a part of what we are called to do, to remember and praise God for what he has done for us. Peace during present circumstances, hope for the future, is built on thanksgiving for what has happened in the past. And in the Old Testament, they established a regular rhythm of recounting how God had rescued them. The feasts of Israel... Passover, Tabernacles, several of the others, the ones where Israel were supposed to go up every year to Jerusalem, they were recounting how God had saved them. The Feast of Passover, how God had delivered them out of Egypt. The Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, how God had led them miraculously through the wilderness to bring them to the promised land. And so these Israelites who are recounting the songs of ascent, which is what this is, are recounting it on their way to Jerusalem in order to do a corporate remembrance of how God had saved them and blessed them. But you also have instances even before that Egypt story of how the people of God set up memory and remembrance of what God had done. Abraham, I'd heard one preacher talk about it years ago, was an altar builder. So whenever God showed up and arrived for him, what Abraham would do was build an altar. And an altar then was not just um, a table. It was stones. You would pile stones so big that they wouldn't be easily moved. And on top of that, the biggest stone, you would sacrifice animals to God. So when God arrived several times for Abraham, Abraham built a stone altar, sacrificed an animal to worship, and then for years, anybody who passed by knew, oh, That was when the Lord called Abraham. That was when the Lord promised to Abraham that he would give him a son. Oh, this is when, and you could pass by these memorials, like a Washington monument, but unto God. 
And the Old Testament is filled with those sorts of setting up memories, memorials, places of recalling what God had done. And in a sense, that's what we do every Sunday. A church worship service, regardless of denomination, in, in all of its odd things, that it, if you've never been in a church service and this is your first time, it's weird. We, we sing together, somebody reads something, we're praying for kids, they leave, there's a guy up here talking. But singing, hearing what? What God has done, who he is. And that's what we do. We sing about who God is and what he has done. We hear from, the, from God's word about who he is and what he has done. We pray to God, handing over our things because we know what he has done. We reenact a, a meal that Jesus had with his friends, believing God will be present once again. We are doing every Sunday what Israel did, which is to give thanks and praise to God. And often when you're struggling in life, it's the time when you try to avoid a, a church, um, but I think that's when we most need collective thanksgiving. To remember who God is and what he has done and to hear it from one another when we can't do it ourselves. So this passage points us to collective thanksgiving, but it also calls us to personal thanksgiving that there's a benefit to reflecting on what God has done in your life. How has he provided for you in ways that were out of your control, like the psalmist is talking about God rescuing them? How has he protected you from suffering, from evil, and even your own stupidity? And sometimes looking back on life, you can finally see that. I know as I was thinking about it this week, I looked back on relationships, close relationships I had while I was in college, and how close relationships, people that I was close to, actually protected me from myself because they de-glorified my self-understanding while also encouraging my gifts. So let me explain what I mean. I, I felt the call to ministry when I was 16, a junior in high school. That doesn't normally happen. By the time I was in college, I had self-aggrandized views of what that would look like. It was either going to look like me as a missionary in a hostile place where people don't believe in God, or I was going to be the heir apparent to Billy Graham. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and I'm a pastor of an Anglican church in my hometown. If somebody had told me that as a first-year freshman in college, I would have thought, no, no, I'm going to be a hero for the faith. I'm going to influence millions. Be famous for Jesus, of course. <laughs> but God kept me from blind self-importance and from stupid danger-seeking because of friends who shaped me, helped me to see my calling as a pastor, even to be faithful here, wherever here is in your life. I needed that. Thank you, God, for those people. 
Beth Moore years ago was in law school and wanted to be a prosecutor. But she wrote in a, in a commentary and uh, in book study on the Songs of Ascent that she is thankful that she is now a Christian author and teacher and not a lawyer. Why? Because she said, as a survivor of child sexual abuse, she could see that in her original career, she would have sought vengeance and not justice. And that she needed to experience the grace and healing of God more than get retribution in life. God called her out of that career into another one, protecting her from her own self, giving her something greater than she could have imagined. What about you when you look back on your life? If the Lord had not been on your side, if the Lord had not been with you, then what would have happened? But the question many of us wrestle with is, has God actually been on our side? Beth Moore writes directly, she says, regardless of how long we've been Christians, most of us don't really believe down in our heart that God is entirely on our side. Yes, we may say God is for us, but our anxieties, our fears, and our insecurities suggest something else. Problem is, we tend to determine whether God is against us or for us based on how he appears to act in our circumstances. Do you really believe God is on your side? That he's with you? Are you constantly thankful? When things go poorly in life, how much do you trust God to handle it? How likely are you to seek him and submit to him first and fully? This psalm calls us to a constant state of remembrance and thankfulness for who God is and what he has done in our life. What gets in the way of us doing that, of actually giving thanks and trusting God completely, it's not having better circumstances in life. What gets in the way is pride. We will not be able to look back over our life and with the psalmist say, oh, if the Lord had not been on my side, then this would have happened, so long as our hearts are bound by pride. Now, pride is a hard thing to see in our own hearts and how it gets in the way of our trust in God, but if I were to ask, are you proud? Are you a proud person? Most of us would sort of, you know, hem and haw a little bit on it. it but here's a couple questions to ask to figure out if you're, if you're a proud person. How do you deal with someone who criticizes your kids? How do you respond to parts of God's moral law that you don't like? Or a really good one, how generous are you? Do you give 2.5% of your income away generously, like the average rich state person? Or 4.6%, like the average poor state person in America? Or do you give away 10%, that church tradition idea of a tithe, 10% of your money going away? Or do you actually follow the Old Testament, which would be more like 20 to 25% of your money given away? Regardless of how much you give away, can you imagine jumping to that next level? 
How long would it take you? A year, five years, 10 years to get from 2.5% to 10%? Can you imagine giving away 20 to 25%? Part of the reason why it's so hard is because we look at the things we have and we say, but it's my money. I mean, it's my career, right? They're my kids. It's my body. And we live our lives giving thanks to ourselves, acknowledging ourselves. Pride, as Pastor Tim Keller said, is cosmic plagiarism. It is claiming to be the author of the good in your life. Pride is an exaggeration of our importance and an assumption that we are in control. We look around our our lives and we think, okay, I've got a nice house, a good job, savings, a happy marriage, kids, everything's going pretty all right. But why? It's because I've sacrificed. I've made good choices. I was responsible. I worked hard. I mean... I've put together the things that I have. I mean, I have. Like, let's just look at it. I, I've made the choices. I, I've, I've, you know, limited my spending. I, I've worked two jobs before. I, I've done these things. I'm in control. But then you ask bigger questions like, so did you determine the nation of your birth? Or the century of your birth? Are you responsible for your genetic coding? All the experiences you've had in life, every person who's been around you. Let's say instead of being born when you were, in the place you were, in the century you were, to the parents you were, you were born July 4th, 1776 in Virginia. And you were black. would you still have the same life that you do right now? How much of that did you control? How about when will you die? How are you going to die? When you're 90? Or 52? Or in your 30s? When you're 18? I mean, can you actually know when you're going to die? How much are we really in control? But pride has this false sense of, what I have, I've earned. See, pride looks at life through the lens of fairness and deserving and what you are owed. And when you do that, if things are going well in your life, fairly well, you'll look over your life and say, well, I've worked hard, I've lived responsibly, I've earned this. Of course, if things go poorly in your life, then you can start beating yourself up. I've failed. This trouble is my own fault, and you hate yourself for falling short of some set-up order of how your life was supposed to go. Or there's also a false humility, a low self-esteem pride, which is, I'm an awful person. Bad stuff is what I deserve. I don't deserve friends or success or happiness. I mean, I'm just a horrible person, but it's really false humility. 
when bad comes into your life, you struggle to fully trust God is good. And when good comes into your life, you, fully, you struggle to fully give thanks to God as the Lord of it all. But at the root of real thanksgiving, which you see in this psalm, is the recognition of grace. The opposite of deserving and earning. It's being able to say, if the Lord had not been on our side, if God had not been with me, I would not be where I am. Psalm 124 ends with this verse, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. John Calvin put this at the very beginning of his service in Geneva because he thought this is a way to orient every Christian every day to what really matters in life. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The psalmist is declaring at the end, Yahweh, God alone, is the maker. He's in control. It's the sort of thing we need to hear when we're kind of overwhelmed with fears in life. God is in control, not for the people of Israel, not Egypt or Babylon or Assyria or Rome. For us, God is in control, not ISIS or the Republican Party or mainstream media. God is in control not the economy, not cancer, not anything else. You know, the opposite of thankfulness is not just ingratitude, it's fear. Fear drives pride. We need control. We fear losing control. We don't have any control, but we fear losing it. We're always trying to keep hold of it. And it's hard to be thankful when you're constantly trying to hold tight to everything. When I had just graduated from high school, I went on a 10-day canoeing, outward-bound sort of trip called La Vida in the Adirondack Mountains. And we were a couple days into this canoeing trip where you would go multiple days of canoeing. You had these giant backpacks, and we had set up camp at the far end of this lake, half-mile-sized lake or so. And we boys and girls, teenagers, we had some adult leaders with us, and we're setting up camp, we have our dinner, and right as we're cleaning up from dinner, we see coming towards us across the lake a storm. Oh, this is kind of cool. I mean, we've been rained on already, so you're, you're going to get wet, you know it, but we could watch the storm. Hey, let's sit out and watch the storm. Well, the storm starts heading towards us, and you could hear the thunder in the distance. And then as it got closer, you, we started counting to see how close it was. Oh, there's the lightning. Boom, oh, there's the thunder, so three seconds, how far is that? But it kept coming towards us. <laughs> and eventually our guide said, okay guys, every one of you grab a life preserver. You're going to sit on the life preserver in a hunched ball, not anywhere near each other and not near any trees. At this point we started getting a little bit afraid. <laughs> the lightning was getting closer and closer. We were now spread out, not sitting near each other. And I remember counting in my head as I heard girls crying. And bo boys don't cry when they're teenagers. They sort of whimper like a dog. <laughs> We're like, a, you don't really want to be heard crying, but you, you, you are. <laughs> so the other boys, not me, were whimpering. And, <laughs> and I remember counting, you know, lightning strike. One, two, boom. 
lightning strike, boom, lightning strike, boom. And then all of a sudden, there was this time when Tom, another boy, called out to our youth leader. And he said, Will, Will Cravens, who some of you know, Will, is this what God meant when he said we're supposed to fear him? And Will called out from 20, 30 feet away in the dark and the lightning, No, Tom, I don't think this is what he meant. And as soon as he said that, kaboom! The loudest peal of thunder on top of the brightest light. It was like a bomb had just dropped right in front of us. We just ran as fast as we could into the woods. I don't think you're supposed to do that. And eventually the storm passed completely. Tears, we ended up soaking wet. The next morning we got up and saw that a tree had this streak of lightning that had ripped down it. The tree was about 10 feet from Tom, about 20 feet from me. And I realized right then and there, and for the rest of the week, I'm not in control. (laughs) Only God is. There's nothing like a very close lightning storm to remind you of that. But you know what else I found? Is I no longer had fear. God is in control. I can't control that lightning. But in relinquishing that control and that fear, I was given such peace. It was unbelievable. When you realize how little you can control and actually fully believe God is in control, you will no longer be paralyzed by fear and anxiety. You won't look to the future with depressing pessimism or with naive optimism you will realize you can have hope and you can have peace regardless of circumstances because God and he alone is sovereign and in control. You know, this is 4th of July weekend when we celebrate our nation's independence. And I I love the freedoms that we have here. And of course, we exploit those a little bit far and we move from freedom and liberty into autonomy and self-reliance. The challenge is that Christian faith requires not independence, but dependence. Total humility, absolute trust, a recognition that God doesn't help those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. God resurrects dead people. And one of the curses of our prosperity and success is we think we're alive and everything's okay on our own and we don't really need God. Christian faith involves acknowledging we have nothing, deserve nothing. Christ offers us everything and falling upon his mercy. This verse that sums up the whole psalm Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Every commentator I read pointed that 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 verse over to Romans 8.31, where Paul in Romans 8 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's the same idea. Romans 8 then goes on to say, how do we know God is for us? Because he who did not spare his own son how will he not graciously give us all things? What are the all things that God gives us? It's what we need. Not what we want or think we want, it's what we really need. 
there is a greater good than escaping from floods or enemies. There's a thankfulness that can be had that's not bound by your circumstances being good. What Romans 8 tells us that we need more than anything in life is Christ. And it tells us nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Look, in this life, if you don't know it already, you, you will at some point, you are not fully in control. But if God is, you have no reason to fear. God promises he will deliver you either from or through, either from or through every circumstance. He may give, he may take away. He will not leave you. He is on your side. He is with you because he loves you. Let's pray. Lord, it is not easy to be dependent because we live such independent and self-reliant lives. We're in control of so much that it's hard for us to see how little we can control. Give us the ability to look over our lives and our future and give thanks to the one who alone can rescue, who alone saves. In his name we pray, amen.